see the glorious mystery of the gospel, uh, Christ in us, the hope of glory. I pray you'd open our eyes to see the hidden treasures of wisdom and understanding that are found in Christ. And I pray you'd grip our hearts by the supreme uh, cause of being caught up in Christ's purposes in the world, of proclaiming him and presenting people mature in him. Uh, For his glory we pray. Amen. Uh, Way back in the 14th century, a guy by the name of John Wycliffe uh, said this. He said, uh, the highest calling that people might attain to on earth is to preach the word of God. Well, there are lots of incredible things that you could do with your life, but the highest calling that you can attain to on earth is to preach the word of God. W.E. Sankster, who was a Methodist preacher in the first half of the 20th century, uh, he said, uh, called to preach, commissioned of God to teach his word, a herald of the great king, a witness of the eternal gospel. Could any work be more high and holy? To this supreme task, God sent his only begotten son. Uh, Last week, I wasn't here, but you guys looked at chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, uh, and in those verses, Paul gave us uh, just a glimpse of the supreme Christ, right? That the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the one who is supreme in absolutely everything, he's supreme uh, in the first creation. Uh, So if you've got uh, your Bible open at Colossians chapter 1, you'll see from verse 15, uh, Christ is the firstborn over all creation, uh, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Christ and for Christ. Right? Christ is supreme, Paul says. Supreme in, in this creation, in this first creation, and he's supreme in the new creation. From verse 18, Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, first He's the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything, in first creation, in new creation, he might, be, he might have the supremacy. That's Paul's point. Christ is supreme. And in today's passage, Paul's saying that people like him, right, people who follow in his footsteps, pastors, teachers, preachers of the gospel, those people are engaged in a supreme ministry, an incredible calling, not because there's anything particularly special about them, but because they're acting as servants of the supreme Christ, you see. They're ambassadors of Christ in the world, proclaiming the gospel of Christ, presenting people mature in Christ. What higher calling could you possibly desire to have, Paul's take? Uh, So for that reason, this passage is particularly relevant for you uh, if you're either already in full-time gospel ministry or you're training for full-time gospel ministry. That's true for some of you who are here. Right? This is the ministry you're either in or you're training for. Right? But, but uh, it's actually relevant for all of us. Right? Well, whether you're, whatever your occupation you're in, whether it's paid or unpaid, full-time or part-time, if you're a Christian, you're called to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're called to be an ambassador of his in the world, representing him in your words and your deeds. Uh, so many of the principles in this passage can be transferred to your context. So let's look at this passage. What do we learn in this passage about Paul's supreme ministry? Uh, The first thing we learn in verse 24, uh, we we learn about his attitude to this ministry. Have a look there, verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. So Paul's attitude to this ministry is that he rejoices in his suffering. Rejoices 
in his suffering. Uh, if you're here and you're not a Christian, that, that would make absolutely no sense, right? To rejoice in, in suffering, well, what's with that? Right, but this is all through the New Testament. Right? There's a bunch of verses. First Peter chapter 4, verse 13, for example, says, Rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Uh, Acts 5, 41, that the apostles are leaving the Sanhedrin, and, and Luke tells us that they're rejoicing because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Christ. Well, there's all sorts of verses. The New Testament's consistent with this idea of having joy in suffering. Why is that? Well, the answer of the New Testament as a whole is much broader than this. But in this one verse, Paul gives us three reasons why he rejoices in his suffering. This is where we're going to spend our most time today, so don't panic. If you're looking at the watch and you're like, gee, Aaron's taking a long time on this one point. Yeah, I will. But three, three reasons why he has joy in suffering. Now, the first reason is that he knows that his suffering is for the good of the church. Have a look there. He says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. For the sake of Christ's body, he says, which is the church. Right, so Paul knows that, that his willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel uh, is for the good of the church, for, for the growth of the church. Uh, it's for the growth of the church in mission. Right, in seeing people converted, in, in people coming to know Christ. Right? After all, this church in Colossae, for example, wouldn't have even existed if Paul hadn't have been willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel in Ephesus, where Epaphras became a Christian and then went back to Colossae and the church was planted there. Right? Paul suffered greatly in Ephesus. But that led to the growth of the church. It was for the good of the church in mission. But also, his suffering leads to the growth of the church in maturity. Right, because the church, this is how this works, right? The church, the, the, the other also known as the, the body of Christ, uh, is so kind of deeply connected that when one part of the body uh, experiences suffering, the whole body suffers. Or, or when one part of the body perseveres through suffering, it's like the whole body is encouraged by their perseverance. You think, well, that person can persevere through suffering, but maybe, maybe I can too. When one part of the body is comforted in the midst of suffering, their comfort overflows to other people. And when one part of the body is humbled or broken or, or made more tender through suffering, that tenderness overflows to, to how they relate to others in the body of Christ. Right? And, and I think this is particularly so for pastors of the church. Uh, John Newton, the, the, the man who, who wrote Amazing Grace... He also wrote a lot, of, a lot of other things that are less famous. And one of them is, he once said this. He said, uh, God appoints his ministers to be sorely exercised, right, to suffer greatly, both from without and from within, that they might sympathize with their flock. Right, this is in God's sovereign plan, that ministers of the gospel would suffer greatly that they might be tender and gentle and humble in how they treat their flock. So Paul rejoices in his suffering because he knows that, that God has and will use his suffering for the good of the church. It's for their sake. He also rejoices because his suffering gives him a special sense of just how close he is with Christ, his intimacy with Christ. And notice he says, I fill up... In my flesh, what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions? See that? This is surely like who's suffering here? Is it is it Paul or Christ? And, and that's part of the point, isn't it? 
Right, it's a bit like Gabby's kids talk. Paul's telling us something here about the deep spiritual connection between Christ and his people. Now, Paul actually became aware of this when he first became a Christian. You might remember Paul's on the, on the way to Damascus. Uh, he's all heated up. He's going to persecute and even coordinate the killing of even more Christians. Uh, but in, in chapter, Acts 9, verse 4, uh, the risen Lord Jesus confronts Paul. And he says, Saul, Saul, right? Saul's Paul's other name, right? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right, so, so Paul's going around persecuting Christians, and Christ says, you're persecuting me. Right? By the power of his spirit, Christ, our people are united with him so deeply that they're in him, as Gabby was saying in the kids' talk, and Christ is in them. Uh, another illustration of this, right? It's a bit like this letter and this envelope. Some of you have seen this before, right? If I put the uh, letter in the envelope, whatever happens to the envelope happens to the letter, right? Go to the mailbox. Does anyone do that these days? Go to the mailbox. Anyway, post the letter. Uh, post the envelope, you post the letter, right? That's how it works. Uh, if you uh, step on the envelope, you step on the letter. If you crush the envelope, you crush the letter, what happens to the uh, envelope happens to the letter because the letter is in the envelope. Right? That's what Paul's saying about the Christian's relationship with Christ. He's saying that he's suffering because he's in Christ. He's suffering because Christ suffered. And Christ's suffering because he's suffering. So Paul rejoices when he has the incredible privilege this is how he thinks about this, right? The privilege, right? When, he, when he's counted worthy of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Why? Because it reminds him of just how close he is with Christ. What an incredible honor to share in the sufferings of Christ. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, It's been granted to you not only to share in the glory of the resurrection, but to share in the sufferings of Christ. Those apostles in Acts 5 who, who were, went, left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Why? Because they were counted worthy of, of, of uh, what was it? Sharing in the disgrace for the sake of the name of Christ. Paul rejoices in his suffering uh, because, uh, because it gives him this special sense of intimacy with Christ. Uh, and third, he rejoices in his suffering uh, because he sees his suffering as kind, of, as kind of speeding up Christ's return. This is what that strange bit is where he says that in his suffering, he's filling up in his flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Now, if you've been around church a bit, you hear those words and you're like, what, like there's something lacking in Christ's afflictions? Like I, I thought Paul had just finished saying that Christ's suffering on the cross was sufficient for our forgiveness, for our reconciliation, for our full freedom from sin. What, what could be lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, certainly he's not saying that there's something lacking in Christ's suffering in the sense of saving us. He's not saying that. What is he saying? Well, I think he's drawing on a common Jewish idea at this time, which said that before the Messiah's kingdom would come in all its fullness, his people would have to experience a specific amount of suffering. It's in a few places in the New Testament this comes up. For example, in Revelation chapter 6, uh, there's a group of, uh, John has a vision, a group of people, uh, Christians who've suffered and been killed for the sake of Christ. And they cry out saying, how long, sovereign Lord, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth, right? those who've killed us for our faith. Uh, and God said, they say, how long? And God says, wait a bit longer 
until, get this, until the full number of your fellow servants, your brothers and sisters, are killed just as you have been. Right? That's confronting. But God has a specific number of Christians that must be killed for the sake of the spread of the gospel before Christ will return. He has a specific amount of suffering in mind that his people will experience before Christ returns. And so Paul rejoices in every bit of suffering he experiences because he knows it's filling up that specific amount of suffering before Christ returns and brings his kingdom in all its fullness. What a joy for Paul. His attitude in this supreme ministry is that he rejoices in his suffering. Uh, Verses 25 to 27. This is Paul's commission. Have a look there, verse 25. I've become its servant, Paul says. That's the church's servant. By the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. So so Paul says, God has commissioned me, he sent me out uh, to present his word to his people, his church, uh, in its fullness. And don't miss that, right? Because this is the the essence of every genuine Christian ministry. Men and women who see themselves as servants of God, commissioned by him, uh, to lay out, to unpack, to, to, uh, uh, what is it, to present the word of God in its fullness, its full meaning, its full implications for the lives of his people. That's the heart of Christian ministry. In fact, I go so far as saying that if you're ever in a a so-called Christian ministry where that's not happening, either they either don't open the Bible at all or or they just open it because they want to bounce off it to share their own ideas, if you're ever in that sort of Christian ministry, you should seriously consider leaving. That is not Christian ministry. Christian ministry is this. Paul has been commissioned to, to unpack the fullness of God's Word. To proclaim God's word in all its fullness. That's his commission. And in verses 26 and 27, we see that the fullness of God's word centers on the mystery of the gospel. Right? The, the mystery, Paul says, uh, that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, uh, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. Uh, to them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, uh, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Right, so this mystery here—it's not like uh, you know KFC, seven secret herbs and spices—you know, ne- never to be never to be revealed, right? It's not that kind of mystery. This is a mystery that was hidden, Paul says, but now it's been made known. It's been disclosed, and we know from the start of, uh, for example, the start of Ephesians chapter three, uh, this mis- uh, this mystery is the amazing truth uh, that Jews and non-Jews. Right? Jews and Gentiles can be brought together through trusting in Christ as a part of the one people. The, the hostility between Jews and Gentiles who would never hang out, uh, who would never eat together, who would never spend any time together, that hostility has been broken down uh, so they can be reconciled as, as the people of God. Uh, and, the, and the mystery is that by the power of, of God's Spirit, Christ can forgive and cleanse and be in. Notice this uh, verse, Christ in you. Christ can be in, not just Jews, but, but Gentiles like the Colossians. That's a, that's a great mystery. How is this possible? And we know from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, uh, that Christ being in us by the power of his Spirit, uh, Paul says it's just a deposit. It's like a down payment on our full inheritance. What Paul calls here our hope 
of glory. Our glorious hope of eternal life. So Paul's commission is to lay out the fullness of God's word. The fullness of God's word that centers on Christ, who he is and what he's done. To make it possible for him to be in us by the power of his spirit. And for us to have this glorious hope of eternal life. And that leads to his purpose. Look, in in verse 28... Uh, Paul says there, uh, Christ is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Notice the words fully. This is the connection. Paul's commission is to fully proclaim God's word such that he would be able to present God's people fully mature in Christ. Don't have fully mature disciples without the full proclamation of God's word. They go together in Paul's mind. Paul is not interested in simply proclaiming Christ so that people become Christians. I mean, he's for that. But his main, aim, his main aim is that when Christ returns, he would be able to present to him as many people as possible who are mature in him, who've continued on in the faith. Right? People who, he doesn't want to just see people come to know Christ, but to grow in Christ. Uh, To use the language of chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, he doesn't want to just see people uh, receive Christ Jesus as Lord, uh, but to continue to live with Christ Jesus as Lord. Uh, To use the language of our vision statement, he he doesn't want to see people just kind of getting a taste that Christ is good, uh, but to be deeply satisfied in the goodness of Christ, increasingly satisfied till the very end of their lives. And Paul knows that if this purpose is going to be realized, he has to do three things. You can see them there in this verse. Three things. First, proclaim. Either there's a message that must be declared, an announcement, the good news of who Christ is and what he's done. That must be proclaimed such that people become Christians. But then the job isn't done, is it? Once people become Christians, he says he has to care enough to admonish them. We don't use the word admonish much these days. It's, it's warning. It's, it's correcting people. Right? Just as Paul's doing in this letter to the Colossians, right? He's seen them, they're, they're going off track. He's, oh, I'm admonishing them. And he's also got to work out a way of teaching them. And notice that he says, teach everyone, literally every individual, so that every person is firmly established in Christ. I say that Paul's got to work out a way to do that because it's obvious that he's not doing all that teaching himself. He does a lot of teaching. But he wants the growth of the gospel to go way beyond his personal capacity to teach. So what does he do? He trains up people like Timothy, people like Epaphras, so that every individual in these churches can be taught and keep maturing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to see happen here at Darabin Presbyterian. We want to see every individual maturing. I taught the, the truths of God's word in a deep and profound way such that they're built up in Christ, maturing in Christ. And if that's going to happen, we need to multiply teachers. We need more gospel community leaders, more kids leaders. We need more people who can read the Bible one-on-one with someone else to disciple them in the faith. Right, so that my teaching capacity doesn't become the bottleneck for our church's growth. That would be a horrible thing. I mean, we might grow in number, 
I don't know that I'm suggesting people are going to flock to my preaching, but we might grow in number, but it'll be superficial, won't it? It'll lack depth unless we multiply teachers so that we can present everyone mature in Christ. So that's Paul's great purpose, to present people to mature in Christ. And in verse 29, we see how devoted he is to that purpose. He says, To this end I strenuously contend with all the energy that Christ so powerfully works in me. Uh, often I'm talking with someone, uh, and you know how the conversation goes, uh, uh, what do you do for a living, or what, what's your work, I'm a pastor, uh, and usually uh, one of the next questions is, uh, so what do you do on the other six days of the week? You know, like I get the Sunday thing, the, the church service, but what do you do? I mean, like, is that all you do? Like, and I, and I sort of say, well, actually, you know, like it's actually like a fair bit to do, uh, like I'm, I'm relatively busy. In fact, in fact, often I feel a bit like Paul. I don't usually say that in the conversation, but I do. I feel a bit like Paul uh, uh, because it's actually quite hard work. The the word uh, translated here as strenuously contend is actually a combination of two words. The first has the sense of labouring to the point of exhaustion. And the second has the sense of deep pain. It's where we get our English word agony, agonizomai. That's the Greek word. So we get our English word agony from that. It used to be used in the ancient games to describe wrestlers or athletes pushing to the point of agony. And Paul says that's, how, that's what his ministry's like, labouring to the point of exhaustion, straining every fibre in his being to the point of being in agony. Uh, one of the things about being a pastor is that generally uh, you spend lots of time by yourself. I have lots of time with people in some ways, but I've got a whole lot of time where there's no one looking over my shoulder to check if I'm working hard or not. And if you're in full-time gospel ministry already, you'll know that's the case. Very much your own boss, lots of discretionary time. Uh, For some pastors, that can lead to overwork, to burnout, uh, to stress. There's There's a real danger of that. Uh, But for others, it can lead to underwork, to a lack of discipline, to laziness, to self-indulgence. And Paul would say that is not an attitude that's fitting for this supreme ministry. Uh, Imagine the chief of staff to the president taking that attitude. It's just not fitting. You work hard in that role. You're disciplined. You've got to use your time well. Well, multiply that, being an ambassador of the great king. Paul's devoted to this ministry. He sees it as a supreme ministry. Uh, In chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, we see his devotion in his concern for the Colossians. Uh, In verse 1, we see how intense his concern is. He says, "I I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. So Paul uses that word again, right? He he assures the Colossians and and all the Christians in this region that he's contending for them, right? He's he's agonizing for them. And and what's incredible about that is that he hasn't even met them. You see? I'm in agony for you and for all those I haven't met personally. It's an amazing glimpse of just how much Paul loved the church. How concerned he was for God's people. 
Uh, in part, Paul's concerned uh, for these Christians in, in Colossae because they're Gentiles, right? And Christ has given them this special commission to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He kind of had a special affection for them. Uh, he's also heard Epaphras' report. He's convinced that they're genuine Christians. Uh, so they're brothers and sisters in Christ. He, he loves them such. Uh, and not only any brothers and sisters, because remember, uh, Paul was involved in seeing Epaphras become a Christian. Uh, and Epaphras saw these Colossians become a Christian. Uh, so in many ways, these Colossians are a bit like Paul's spiritual grandchildren. right? They're, they're really precious to him. He, he loves them. So Paul has this deep concern for them. He agonizes for their growth and maturity in the Lord Jesus. I wonder if you have this kind of concern for the people in our church. It's an interesting question to contemplate. Do you agonize? Is it on your mind? In your prayers? Does it trickle down into your behavior? That you're, you're agonizing for the maturity of your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a real concern for you. Or perhaps you don't care that much. You just kind of try to keep your distance because you don't want to get too intense. And once you get concerned, it gets messy. People start opening up. You actually have to get into the nitty-gritty of your life. So you just kind of keep your distance. I mean, that's one thing, to, to, to be somewhat concerned about the maturity of our brothers and sisters here. But, but what about our brothers and sisters who aren't a part of our church? We've just heard from Matt and Kate. Do we agonize for the maturity of those our brothers and sisters up on Groot Island? I hope we will, increasingly. That it will be reflected in our prayers, in our commitment to our partnership with them. Do we agonize for the maturity of our brothers and sisters in Japan? We're going to hear from the Jessops uh, next week or the week after. There are other mission partners in Japan. I haven't met the, the, the people in their church, but man, I hope they're growing in Christ. I wish I prayed for them more. Right, Paul's a great example for us here. His concern for the church. And in verses 2 and 3, we see the focus of his concern. Right? He says, uh, my goal... Uh, is that all these believers may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have uh, the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All right, so the, the focus of Paul's concern is really twofold. Now, there's lots of details here, but the, the twofold concern is that these Christians in Colossae would have an ever-deepening knowledge of Christ and an ever-deepening love for Christ's people. So first, they have this ever-deepening knowledge of Christ. In verse 2, he says uh, he wants them to know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, so, so Paul knows that the, the, the key, if the Colossians are going to keep growing and, and be, being healthy and mature in their faith, is that they would grow in knowledge of Christ. But because all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. And this is a real dig at the false teachers in Colossae. A real dig. Because they, were, they, were, they came to this church in Colossae and they said, sure, there's some wisdom to be found in Christ. Right? We're not denying that. Christ's got some stuff going for him. Right? But, but we, we have this better wisdom, you see. We've got these new insights, this greater knowledge. And Paul says that is rubbish, doesn't he? 
It's rubbish if you know Christ, rather the supreme Christ of chapter 1, the one through whom and for whom everything was created, you would be crazy to look elsewhere for wisdom. But there might be more, Paul says. You've just got to dig deeper. You've got to mind that the full riches of what you already have in Christ, he says. See, in the eyes of the world, uh, the, the eyes of these false teachers in Colossae, some of these riches are hidden. That's what Paul says. They're, they're hidden in Christ. Uh, John Calvin, I, I rarely quote John Calvin, but I'm a Presbyterian minister, so I should sometimes. Uh, John Calvin says, uh, These treasures are not seen glittering with great splendor. They lie hidden under the contemptible abasement and simplicity of the cross. What's he saying? He's saying that for the Christian, the death of Christ on the cross represents the full riches of God's wisdom. God's ways are not our ways. God finding in the one event a way to judge sin and save sinners. Who would have thought of that? No mind can conceive of that, no human mind. It's the riches of God's wisdom. But for the non-Christian, that wisdom is hidden. It just seems like foolishness to them. So the first focus of Paul's concern is that the Colossians would have this ever-deepening knowledge of Christ. But notice where he says they'll find that knowledge. People in our culture, we get a bit new agey in this area. People like, if you want spiritual knowledge... Whatever you do, don't go to community. Well, what you have to do is get by yourself in some cave somewhere and look at, you know, do a bit of navel gazing, a bit of meditation, that kind of thing. Because real spiritual insight is found in solitude. Well, notice what Paul says. My goal is that you may be encouraged in heart and united. Right? Literally, knit together. Knit together in love. So that you might have the full riches of complete understanding. Notice that connection there. Right? Ever-deepening knowledge of Christ is the result, so that, uh, of their ever-deepening love for one another. They're, they're being knit together as a community of Christ. So this might grate on you. Our, our culture is very individualistic. right? But the, the, the reality is, there is no way that you can experience the full riches of knowing Christ if you're not deeply connected with the church of Christ. You just can't. You'll be an impoverished Christian. No Christian, no part of the body of Christ can grow and flourish uh, independent of the body of Christ. That's what Paul's saying. Being a part of a church, being deeply connected with a church is not some optional extra to the Christian life. It's the main engine room for Christian growth. I'll give you a couple of examples of of what this might look like. Uh, In my experience... It's when I've been loved really sacrificially by a brother or sister in Christ that I've got a fresh sense of of Christ's loving, sacrificial uh, love for me. That's one example. Or when a brother or sister has seen me in my sin and they've loved me enough to correct me, humbly, gently, but they've, they've loved me enough to do that. I get a fresh sense of, of how much Christ loves me, not just uh, to accept me as I am, but to, to change me and, gl- and make me more like him, to clean me up, not just to leave me in my sins. 
or when a brother or sister forgives me rather than making me pay for my sins. It gives me a fresh sense of, uh, of the price that Christ paid for my sins on the cross, that I might be forgiven and forgive. So in verses 2 and 3, Paul's, uh, the focus of Paul's concern is this ever-deepening knowledge of Christ and this ever-deepening love uh, for the people of Christ. And finally, in verses 4 and 5, we see what motivates his concern. It's that he doesn't want the Colossians to be led astray. Look, I tell you this, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are, how, and how firm your faith in Christ is. But Paul does not want these, these Colossians, these dear brothers and sisters in Colossae, to be deceived. And he knows there's a danger of that, because these false teachers are very persuasive. They've got these fine-sounding arguments. So he's concerned, but he's also confident. You see that? He's confident that, that if the Colossians are disciplined in their mind and in their hearts, notice those, in their knowledge and in their love for one another, they'll be able to stand firm in their faith in Christ. Uh, the British uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon uh, once said, uh, if God has called you to be his servant, why would you stoop to being a king? If God has called you to be his servant, why would you stoop to being a king? That, that's a bit of how Paul feels about his ministry, I think. He's doing this ministry on behalf of the supreme Christ. It's, it's a supreme calling, a supreme ministry. And in a real sense, as members of Christ's body, uh, that's a ministry that all of us have a part to play in. But all of us have a part to play, it, it, uh, sent out by Christ, uh, to make disciples of all nations, uh, to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ, and to play our part in, in seeing people maturing in Christ. So whether paid or unpaid, whether full-time or part, I want us to pray that God would strengthen us for this supreme ministry. To play our part. You know, we might not all be doing the same thing. Not everyone's a preacher, not everyone's a kid's leader, not everyone is up the front doing music. But we're all going to see this supreme ministry of proclaiming Christ and presenting people maturing Christ as the main thing in our lives. Whether you're a mum or you work in the city as an accountant or you're a lawyer or you're a teacher, this is the main game. Proclaiming Christ and presenting people mature in Christ. Oh, let's pray. Uh, our gracious Father, we thank you for Paul. Uh, we thank you for the insight we see in this passage uh, of his supreme ministry on behalf of our Lord Jesus who is supreme in everything. Uh, we do pray, Father, that our hearts would increasingly be captured by what the, the incredible privilege it is uh, to share in this ministry. Uh, that you would call us your servants. Uh, why would we stoop to do anything else? May our hearts be captured by the glory of this calling. May we give ourselves to proclaiming our Lord Jesus, uh, to pl uh, playing our part in proclaiming him and presenting people mature in him. Amen.